0: This morning, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and so if you would join me there, I'd appreciate it. If you need a copy of God's Word, there's one in the rack in front of you, and you'll find the text that we'll be reading here in just a little bit on page 140, 140. You can join us there. We're in a sub-series, within a series, in our journey through the book of Deuteronomy. We are pausing for these extended days during the summer uh, to do some Digging deeply into uh, the Ten Commandments of the living God. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments. Everybody loves them, but we're trying to cast a fresh light on them and help us to understand their value for this very important time in which we live. You know, uh, speaking of Father's Day, one of the most important things that parents have the responsibility of doing is training the selfish bent out of their children. Listen, your children come into this world as selfish as selfish can be. Everything's about them. Feed me, hold me, you know, take me, give me and we spend the better part of their early lives satisfying the needs of their life, but a part of our responsibility is to help them to see that that selfish bent comes as a result of the fall. It's there because they're born in a condition of sin, as we all are, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So one of the things that we try to teach our children to do, I did, you did as well probably, and that is to teach them the value of sharing, right? the importance of sharing, and that's a very good thing. But can I make an important statement this morning? There are some things in life that are not meant to be shared. Answers to test questions are not meant to be shared. A unicycle, think about it, (laughs) is not meant to be shared. Used chewing gum, is not meant to be shared. Hershey's kisses, oh Lord, are not meant to be shared. The sexual love of a husband and a wife is not meant to be shared. There are a number of things that are not meant to be shared, but you know what top on that list is of things not to be shared? God's glory is not meant to be shared. The Bible says when it comes to his glory, our Lord is a jealous God, intolerant of any rival, any competitor that would seek to detract from his eternal glory. That's very important. Dads, if I were to ask you this morning, if I were to ask your kids this morning, what's most important to your dad? I wonder what they tell me. I'm just going to let that set for a couple of minutes this morning. I'll come back to it in a minute. But today we're going to focus principally on the second of the Ten Commandments where God reminds us that there is something important to him that he does not want to be shared with anyone or anything. It's the second of the 10 Commandments. But given that the second commandment is directly connected to the first commandment in our reading this morning, we'll back up and look at both of them together beginning in Deuteronomy chapter five and verse number six. I'm gonna invite you to stand together, those of you that are able as we read from Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 10. You ready to read? Say amen. Amen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. Father, this morning we ask for you to bless this, the reading of your word, and not only to bless its reading, but to take these words and impart them deep within our lives, our consciences, and indeed our very hearts, that the word of God might not just be informative, but transformative, so that we may live in such a way that demonstrates that our lives are being lived to the glory of God alone. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Amen. Thank you, Hillcrest. Y'all can be seated. The common elements that tie together the first and the second commandment is fundamentally the element of worship. Commandment number one, which Dustin Scott explained so wonderfully last week, deals with the who of worship. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other God before me. That's the who of worship, it has to do with making sure that you worship the right God. The second commandment deals more with the how of worship. Whereas the first commandment helps us to understand how to worship the right God. The second commandment helps us to understand how to worship the right God in the right way. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to it and serve it. And the reason that these two commands are listed first, and the reason they're so important, frankly, is because everybody worships something. Everybody worships something or somebody, and it doesn't matter who you are. That's because God made you that way. It's part of what is involved with being created in the image of God. God created you to worship. You are hardwired to worship. And of course, when God made the first man and the first woman, that hardwiring for worship was directed exclusively to them, or to to Him rather, to Him alone. They were created to walk in a unique fellowship with God and that they did until rebellion set in and they decided they knew better than God and made a decision to go their own way and violate the commands of God. But God created you in His image to walk in harmony with Him. Sin has corrupted that, not only for Adam and Eve, but it's corrupted that for every single one of us and that's how we end up with all of these different God substitutes right you find them all over the world and it's endemic in the human heart that's broken because of sin God hard hardwires us to worship that hard wiring was originally directed toward him sin corrupts that but because we're made to worship we just find something else to worship we fashion it according to our likes and according to our piccadillos and according to our preferences. What God says in this first commandment, commandment number one, I alone am to be the object of your worship. You shall have no other gods before me. What God says in the second command is that in your worship of me, don't attempt to reduce me down to a visible image. Don't attempt to reduce me down to some kind of an imagined concept or an imagined idea. The reason that's dangerous is because when you do that, when you try to take God, even when you say, oh, I believe there's only one God, but then you take that one God and try to reduce that one God down to something that you can see or feel or touch, that becomes something that you then can control, and that's the danger of it. You lose the image of God in whatever it is that you fashion as God. Specifically here, God says not to make a carved image. The old King James language is what? A graven image. Well, the word graven just means carved or shaped. God says don't do that. And by the way, let me just say that applies not only to man-made gods that are not God. That applies to God himself. In fact, God himself really is front and center in this command not to reduce him down to a carved or a graven image. So here's the bottom line. We don't create images of God. Everybody hear me? Amen. We don't create images of God. That's why we don't have any pictures of God in our worship house. That's why we don't have any statues why we don't have any kind of image of God or of, a, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though I surely did in the church I was in when I was growing up, we had that picture, right? That traditional brown-hued old-school picture of Jesus hanging right over the baptistry. You know the one I'm talking about. No, I'm not going to show it to you either. But it's the one of that bearded Jesus with the long flowing hair, sometimes referred to as the Fabio Jesus. You know what I'm talking about, that one? And let me tell you, having looked at that image every Sunday of every year, for the first nearly 20 years of my life, I have to constantly fight off that image of God, which is exactly why God says do not do it. Listen, I've seen Jesus imagined in every kind of way. I've seen black Jesus, brown Jesus, Palestinian Jesus, British Jesus, blonde Jesus, straight haired curly haired you name it. Man, we walk a fine line here because listen, honestly, I spent time over last weekend in a very wonderful museum and Many of them had these beautiful depictions of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all love the Da Vinci's and the Michelangelo's and the Raphael's and the like. I just don't think we ought to have them hanging in our churches. Listen, in fact, I choose not to have them hanging in my home because those things can easily become objects of worship themselves if you're not careful. Some of you may be walking into the church this morning and you're from a Catholic background or an Eastern Orthodox background or whatever, and the first thing that you notice is we don't have any icons in the room. We don't have any icons in the foyer. You may wanna know that. Where are all the statues? Where are all the pictures of Christ? And if you've got a Catholic friend who asks you that question, what would you tell them? You know, what I think you should tell them is, we certainly worship the Christ of the Bible, but what we believe about the Christ is that fundamentally the Christ we worship is a Christ who is meant to be, to be heard and not seen. We worship the Christ who's revealed in scripture. Where is the God of our worship? He's contained in the message of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Our God is revealed in the scriptures. He's not painted on a canvas or carved into a marble slab. So in our church, in our home, what we do rather than putting pictures of God up is we put scriptures on the wall. Somebody say amen. You'll find the written word on walls all around our center. It's in the worship center lobby. We focus on the word, Rather than on images, why? Because God says that's the way it should be. Now again, remember the context. Jesus had just been liberated from Egypt. Egypt, where everything in Egypt was a what? Everything was a god, that's right. That's what we call a polytheistic culture. And in ancient Egypt, each of those gods was usually reduced down to some kind of an objective form. Man, the Egyptians worshiped everything. They were like modern Hindus. They worshiped cats and dogs, and they worshiped crocodiles, and they worshiped falcons, and they worshiped snakes. I'm just saying, you gotta be messed up to worship a snake. But they did, I mean, you name it. Look at the highly decorated tombs that have been excavated in Egypt. All of those different images, each of them representing a god of some kind. But God says here in commandment number two that not only is it wrong to do that with a God of our own making, it's wrong to do that with him. With him. He's not to be represented in shapes or forms that could potentially be used as unscriptural objects of worship. Does that make sense? And the reason is why? Because God is what kind of God? A jealous God. Even, he's jealous even of the images of himself that men try to make if they become an object of worship themselves. Now, God is a jealous God. Sometimes that's misunderstood because God's jealousy is not like our jealousy most of the time. Our jealousy is usually a very insecure kind of jealousy. In fact, most of the time when we use the word jealousy, most of the time we're really talking about envy, as opposed to jealousy, right? Envy is this kind of selfish desiring of what somebody else has. But when the Bible says God is a jealous God, it's not referring to jealousy in terms of God throwing a tantrum whenever someone makes something more important to God than he actually is, or more important to them than God actually is. No, it's a, it's a, it's a righteous jealousy. It's a good kind of jealousy. Uh, that someone guards something that rightfully belongs to them. It's like the, a husband selfishly guarding the love of his wife. And I'm just saying, if God was not a jealous God, if God didn't care if I was faithful to him or not, uh, that would be about as useful as a husband who didn't care if his wife was faithful to him or not. I mean, I care if my wife is faithful to me, don't you, husbands? Man, you want your wife to be faithful to you. That's a good kind of jealousy. And jealousy is often a good thing. God is jealous for his love, why? Because he wants the best for you. Fundamentally because he's God and there is no other God. But God also wants the best for his children. God wants to bless, did you know that? God wants to bless you, not to curse you. He wants to bless you. But make no mistake, judgment is certain for those who provoke God to jealousy. That's what it says here in verse number nine. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I don't have time to go deeply into that statement this morning, but let me just say there are family repercussions to the decision that parents make. I mean, every, every child is a free moral agent And they have the right to accept God or reject God. But I'm telling you all, dads, this morning, you all with me, say amen. The decisions that you make will either drive your children closer to Christ or drive them further away from Christ. And sometimes the repercussions of the terrible, unwise, unbiblical decisions that we make, particularly as it pertains to idolatry, loving anything else more than you love God, can have an impact on your family not only today, but even generationally, generationally. That's what God is talking about right here. And this was the case with Israel. Judgment will be certain for those who provoke God to jealousy. You see an example of that in the 32nd chapter of Exodus. When I mean just a few weeks into the Exodus, the people got to Mount Sinai They camped at the base of Sinai while Moses went up on the mountain to have this wonderful encounter with God. Moses was face to face with God. All the people back at base camp could see was the fire and the smoke, and they were told, don't get close to this because God is holy, and if you approach God in the wrong way, you'll end up being judged, you'll end up being consumed, and Moses was gone for a pretty good while. And he's actually up there getting the commandments of God that we're studying in these important days written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. But before Moses could even make it down off of the mountain with the tablets of the commandments written in stone, the people had done what? They had reduced God down to an image. They had made a carved image. A graven image a golden calf and they were bowing down to it and you know what that implies their hearts were still in Egypt their hearts were still in Egypt that idolatrous culture had permeated their hearts and that's why they needed a command that was written in stone don't reduce God down to a carved or a graven image, because that will ultimately become an object of worship that you'll bow down before and worship itself. And now, nearly 40 years later, where are they? Moses is an old man. Now we're in the book of Deuteronomy. They've had a couple of important victories. They're strategically positioned now to go into the promised land. Moses is recapitulating the law for the people. And they're about to go into a land that's inhabited by what? Pagans. They're about to go into a land that's inhabited by idol worshipers. Nobody in the land that they're going into knows the true living God of heaven and earth. They all worship graven images that they themselves fashion. They're about to go into a land fundamentally that worship the Baals. Represented by the image of a bull. And God knows that for people whose hearts are corrupted and contaminated by sin, what goes around eventually comes around. And that's why Moses is making a big deal. Once again, 40 years after giving them the law, he's making a big deal about these 10 commandments because he knows the people are vulnerable because of their past and Their response to the one true God would mean the difference between life and death, blessing and curses, freedom and bondage. And this is why God says it. All over the book of Deuteronomy, there are warnings against idolatry. I knew we were coming to this passage of Scripture and the commandments, and so we kind of jumped over it. But let me go back one chapter to the end of chapter 4, or actually the middle part of chapter 4. Look at Deuteronomy 4 with me, beginning in verse 23. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. Now remember, they're about to go into the promised land. God had made the covenant with with them at Sinai. His covenant with his people, Israel, now released from bondage. And Moses says, be careful, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a what? Say it out loud. A carved image in the form of what? Anything. Anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, verse 39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath, there is no other. Now let me issue a word of warning this morning um, because I don't want you to be confused. Don't become confused and think that just because you don't have a golden calf or a porcelain Buddha on your coffee table at home, do we still have coffee tables? Your, your side table, your bedside table, your end table, your ottoman, whatever the case might be. You say, well, I don't have a carved image there of a God. I don't have a graven. Im-. Are you sure about that? You might not have a carved image of a Buddha or a carved image of Confucius or a carved image of a Baal or an asterisk or whatever, but you need to be very careful lest you think you're unaffected by this commandment because last time I checked, anytime you value anything more than you value God, that thing, whatever it is, has just become an idol in your life. Some of y'all may have driven your idol to church this morning. Listen, I'm getting ready to make everybody mad today. Just get, hold on and buckle up. Some of you may have your idol docked somewhere today. Some of you may be some among us who have our idols stashed away in a safe deposit box down at the bank. Still others may have their idols over in the children's ministry this morning. You know, it's possible to be sitting beside your idol today. If you love it more than God, whatever it is, I'm telling you, we walk a fine line here, don't we? You want to know what the most prevalent idols are in American uh, culture today? All you have to do is look at the t-shirts people wear. That's all you have to do. Look at the people on those t-shirts, at the teams on those t-shirts, the groups, the symbols, the logos, I'm just saying our idols today typically are not setting as centerpieces on our furniture. They're images, they're ideologies, they're philosophies, they're ideas. Yes, they can be people, they can be tangible things, but these are all things that can be reduced down and displayed in ways that communicate This is what's of value to me as much as or more than anything else. Now, don't get me wrong. Listen, there are certain teams I like, certain places I like, certain brands that I like, certain sports heroes that I like. I was at Dodger Stadium the other day with my son-in-law. First time as a bucket list item. And everybody had these jerseys on. And the names on the back of their jerseys were not the names of the people wearing them. And I was looking around and I said, I'll tell you what, if I could find a jersey that said Koufax on the back of it, cause that's back in my day, somebody say amen. If I could find a jersey that said Koufax on it, I'd buy it and I'd wear it. So we all have our favorite teams and our favorite people But when any of those things become more important to you than God, that's an idol. And it doesn't matter what it is. So the main point of these 10 commandments is summarized very neatly in the very first two of the commandments. They're listed first because they're the most important. And if you're gonna live joyfully and purposefully in the wake of the blessing of God, you've got to worship the right God And you have to worship the right God in the right way. Everybody with me so far? That's the introduction of my message today. Are you with me so far? Say amen. Amen. Let me give you a couple of practical takeaways this morning. Why you need to learn to worship the right God in the right way. And listen, I'm just saying to be careful. Yes, I read my children's story Bibles with pictures of Jesus in it. And I think those can be useful in teaching children. Yes, our literature probably has animated pictures of Jesus and the like. I'm just saying you gotta be very careful about doing that. Very careful, because that can become your image and it might not always be a biblical image. And that's the problem. That's the problem when you get more of your gospel out of some Hollywood production than you do out of the Bible. You better be watching those things with an open Bible in your lap, because I've seen many of them and they are not true to the scriptures. That's all I'm saying this morning. So put your rocks back in your pockets, all right? (laughs) Two very important dangers that idolatry poses. First, remember that idolatry always leads to disappointment those things that you worship that are reflected on the t-shirts and the caps that you wear or in the things that you own or the people that you run in circles with, they always promise more than they can deliver. Isn't that right? And they always let you down. That team's gonna let you down. That relationship at some point, as great as it is, is gonna let you down. Those kids will even let you down. Those parents will let you down. Jesus never will, amen our Lord never fails. Jeremiah 10, 14, every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. With respect to the kind of idols we worship today, what we would say is, as important as many of those things may be, there is no lasting life in them. And that's why the things that we typically shape as idols are frauds because they always promise more than they can deliver. Wear my label and you'll be popular. Drive my car, cool is guaranteed. Wear our sports gear. Ain't no way you can lose, right? But anytime you put a person, a thing, or a product in the place of God, or anytime that you expect those things to solve your problems, or to guarantee happiness in your life, you will end up disappointed along the way. And the same is true when you try to control God. That's what many in the Christian worldview try to do. You try to take the God of the Bible and shape him in such a way so that he doesn't exercise control over you, you exercise control over him. By the way, that's exactly what the prosperity gospel does. That side of Christianity that says if you just have enough faith, God becomes kind of a genie in a bottle who's obligated to give you whatever you ask him to give you, whatever it is that you want in life. I'm amazed at how many self-professed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ do not really want the king of kings. What they want is a Burger King. They want a God who will give it to them their way like the little boy who wanted the new bicycle for Christmas and he told his mom and his dad I really want that new bike for Christmas and the mom looked at her son "Why why don't you go pray about it ask God for it so the little boy decided to write the Lord Jesus a letter and he began the letter by saying dear Jesus I want a new bicycle I deserve it. I've been all but perfect this past year. And he paused for a minute and he knew that wasn't true. So he crumbled up the page, threw it in the garbage, started his letter again. Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy most of the time this year. And he paused and he knew that wasn't really true either. So he started a third letter. Dear Jesus, you know my heart. I want to be a good boy. And he thought, well, that's a lie too. Being bad's most of the time more fun than being good. So he threw that letter away. He thought for a minute, left his room, went into the living room, was all decorated for Christmas, found the nativity scene, grabbed the figurine of Mary from the nativity scene, grabbed a washcloth out of the bathroom, wrapped Mary up in the washcloth, threw it under his bed, started the fourth letter. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) That's what we do with God much of the time. Not quite as overt but we reduce God down to a God that we can manipulate to get what we want. Just do an inventory of your prayer life most of the time. And rather than praying for God's best, I'm just going to leave that there for a second. Idolatry can be manipulative, and it will lead to disappointment. But not only that, second notice that idolatry leads to domination, to domination. See, the danger that you and I face when we try to control God is that we end up being the ones who are controlled. We end up being dominated to whatever it is that we are crafting to worship. Whatever you end up loving and worshiping in God's place will end up controlling your life. Just follow the money. Follow how you spend your money. You heard the old preachers that used to say, I can tell a lot about a person by looking at his calendar and by looking at his checkbook. Nobody keeps a paper calendar anymore and nobody keeps a checkbook much anymore. But you can tell a lot about people by the way they spend their time and the way they spend their money. And those idols will end up controlling you and that's how you can tell, be it a person, an image, an object, a philosophy, an idea. First, we shape the idols, but eventually the idols will always shape you. One time, a rich young man, the Bible says, came to Jesus, 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Something about the Lord Jesus and his teaching drew the man to the Christ, and he came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus has a brief conversation with him and says, here's what you've got to do. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. What's interesting about that is, from a story standpoint, that's the only time Jesus ever asked anybody to do that kind of thing with his earthly possessions in that extreme kind of way. It's the only time he does it. But we know that that is a fundamental condition of discipleship. Luke 14, Jesus said it very clearly. Anybody who is not willing to give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. But this is the only time in the Bible that Jesus actually looks at somebody and says, you remember that teaching? That's what you've got to do. You have to literally do what I said has to be done in order to follow me. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because he knew that young man had an idol in his heart. He knew that man had a, had a spiritual coronary blockage in that anterior descending artery. And it was potentially going to be a widow maker in his life. So he said, you have to get rid of that. It's like all those Old Testament stories where the little figurines were hidden and brought into the household and all this judgment came down on the household and then it was discovered there are idols in the house who brought the idols in the house and the first command was what get rid of them get them out of here because they're not bringing blessing they're bringing the very judgment of God upon our home And Jesus knew that was going to be the case with this young man. He had an idol in his life, and his idol was his money. And so our Lord goes straight to the heart of the issue, and he says, look, this idol is in your life. It's dominating your life. So if you want to follow me, you've got to give up what you have in order to find what you need. It's the saddest story in the Bible, one of them anyway, because this young wealthy man counted the cost of what Christ was asking him to do. And he considered it too high a price. And the Bible says he turns his back on the Lord Jesus Christ and went away what? Sad. Because he had great wealth. Why do people in droves hear the message of the gospel this very day and turn away from it and walk away from it? I'm going to tell you in a nutshell, idolatry. It's idolatry that drives people away from Christ. They love something more than they love God, and they are not willing to love whatever that is less than they love God. And so they hear this incredible message about the eternal riches of the gospel, about this inheritance that can be theirs, that will never perish, never spoil, never fade away, that God is guarding in heaven for them if they would just simply bow before the Lord and proclaim him to be the only true God in their life and follow him with an unreserved commitment. All the riches of eternity could be theirs, but because more people's hearts are captive to an idol of some kind, they cannot relinquish. They will hear the gospel and resist the gospel and then turn from the gospel and walk away sad. Thinking that their idol can provide for them everything that they want in life. And it will only lead to disappointment. Let me ask you a very important question this morning. Are you holding on to something that's keeping you from becoming the person that God created you to be? I mean, whatever that is, whatever you're clutching and whatever you're holding on to, it's an idol and it's dominating your life and it'll eventually disappoint you when you come to the end of your life and find that you've been climbing this ladder only to discover that your ladder was leaning against the wrong wall and there's nothing to undo that except for the gospel, that idol will always keep you from God's very best. Dads, let me ask you again on this Father's Day, if I were to say, I wanna have a talk with your kids this morning, and believe me, I've got kids and now a grandkid, and so I've already thought about this, but if I were to ask your children, hey, can you name some things that are important to your dad? I mean, what really gets your dad's juices flowing, man? What excites your father? What kind of things would they tell me? What what would be on that list? Would your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords be among the first thing that your children would reveal to me if I asked them what was important to dad? How many kids would impulsively say, you know what? My dad loves a lot of things, but he really loves the Lord. He's taught us the Bible. My dad is a dad that's totally committed to God. Listen, I say that with fear and trepidation because every time I point a finger out to y'all, I got three pointing back at me. But it's an important question, isn't it? Parents, you can't teach your children to love and obey God with a passion if your love for Christ is lukewarm, if your obedience to the Lord Jesus is sporadic, If you really believe that God alone is worthy of worship and if you want your kids to grow up looking more like Christ than like the world, you have to teach them that and you have to model them that so that they can see it in a very consistent kind of way. And if you do that consistently, they will more likely as not catch the Spirit and they'll learn from you that nothing, and I mean nothing in this life, matters more than learning to worship the right God and learning to worship him in the right way. This is God's very important word on this blessed Father's Day. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.